0: Good evening. I'm Jeff Bennett,
1: and I'm the Navaz. On the News Hour tonight, continued Israeli airstrikes flatten parts of Rafah as negotiators make progress for a ceasefire in Gaza.
0: The fight over spending on Capitol Hill intensifies, pushing the country ever closer to a government shutdown.
1: And the state of the war in Ukraine, nearly two years into Russia's invasion.
2: This year is clearly looking like a year during which Ukraine is going to focus, most likely, much more on holding, defending trying to rebuild and reconstitute the force, and maybe creating challenges for the Russian armed forces with expanded strike campaigns.
1: Welcome to the news hour. As Israel's bombing of Gaza continues, some progress tonight towards a resumption of talks to both released hostages held by Hamas and reach a ceasefire agreement.
0: Israel's army radio said the country's war cabinet, made up of the prime minister, the defense minister, and opposition leader, approved sending emissaries to truce talks to be held in Paris. But that slow progress toward a deal did nothing to stop the bombing and killing in Gaza. In Rafah this morning, the sun rose over fresh rubble. Gazan health officials said close to four dozen Palestinians were killed in Israeli airstrikes. Dina Al Shar lost three members of her family last night.
3: In 2014, they took three of my siblings. And in the 2024 war, they took the people
4: I love. They took a piece of my heart.
0: In Rafa, the al Farouk Mosque is in ruins as the Muslim holy month of Ramadan approaches.
5: Listen, good people. Let the whole world to listen. We are nearing the blessed month of Ramadan. Where shall we pray?
0: But Israeli officials say, without a new hostage deal, their offensive won't wait for Ramadan. Still, there are small signs of progress. Israel's defense minister said today that Israel would expand the authority of its hostage negotiators. At the same time, violence nearby threatens the chance for peace. In the West Bank, three Palestinian gunmen opened fire at an Israeli checkpoint, killing one and wounding at least five others. Two of the attackers were killed by Israeli forces and the third captured. Israel's far-right national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir called for arming more Israeli citizens, and said their right to safety was more important than the Palestinian right to move freely.
2: I expect to have here more and more checkpoints, to have restrictions. We need to finally come to the understanding that our enemies are not looking for excuses. Our enemies only want to harm. But internationally, the spotlight
0: is on Israel. The United Nations top court continues to hear arguments over the occupation of Palestinian territories. At the G20 meeting in Brazil, a European Union diplomat told reporters, quote, There was a strong request for a two-state solution. It is a consensus among us. In the region, Houthi militants vowed again to continue their attacks on Red Sea shipping lanes. Today, U.S. forces said they shot down six Houthi drones. Meantime, two Houthi missiles hit a British cargo carrier. And in the Gulf of Aden, suspected Houthi missiles set a Liberian-owned ship on fire. In the Israeli port city of Eilat, a suspected Houthi ballistic missile was intercepted by Israel's Aero missile defense system.
6: In the Yemen
7: front, as we mentioned last week, we have shifted towards an escalation in our operations, as the enemy continues to escalate further in the Gaza Strip and persists in committing genocide by all means against the Palestinian people in Gaza.
0: The situation inside Gaza only grows worse. Beyond airstrikes and ground offensive, Palestinians are fighting off starvation.
7: We're trying to get food for our girls. We have girls and a boy. I don't have anything to feed
3: them, nothing.
0: Cooks in Deir Abala work in makeshift kitchens, trying to feed as many as they can. Mahmoud Abu Khalifa is a volunteer from northern Gaza. We have a lot of people we are feeding. We have about 30 to 40,000 people, and it's not enough. Palestinians wait in long lines for a chance to fill a bowl with rice, anything that will get them to the next day. In the day's other headlines, the mother of the late Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, says she's finally been able to see her son's body. But in a video statement today, she said Russian authorities won't hand over his remains unless she agrees to a secret burial.
3: According to the law, they should have given me Alexei's body immediately, but they didn't. Instead, they blackmail me. They put conditions where, when, and how Alexei should be buried. They want it done secretly, without a memorial service. They want to take me to the edge of the cemetery to a fresh grave and say, Here lies your son. I don't
8: agree with that.
0: She's filed a lawsuit demanding her son's body be released, but there won't be a hearing until next month. Meantime, President Biden met with Navalny's widow, Yulia, and daughter today in San Francisco. A White House photo showed their embrace, and in a statement, the president praised her husband's courage. Russian President Vladimir Putin chided President Biden today for calling him, quote, a crazy SOB. Mr. Biden said it during a campaign fundraiser last night in San Francisco in the context of the threat that Putin poses given Russia's nuclear arsenal. Today on Russian state TV, Putin said it was rude, but he suggested with a hint of sarcasm that it shows why he supports a Biden reelection.
7: You asked me who we prefer as the future president of the United States. I said that we would work with any president. But I believe that for us, for Russia, Biden is a more preferable president. And judging by what he just said, I'm absolutely right.
0: The White House had no immediate response to Putin's remarks. In Albania, lawmakers there approved a deal today to temporarily hold thousands of migrants seeking asylum in Italy. Under the five-year agreement, Italy will build two processing centers on Albania's coast to house up to 36,000 people per year. Opposition members of parliament tried to disrupt the vote today with whistles. That's as demonstrators gathered to condemn the plan.
9: Those tourist areas will not be the same after the migrant processing centers are built there. They will all be sent to a closed jail. And from what we have seen in other countries, we have reasons to believe that this will be a security problem for the whole area.
0: Italy has asked other European nations for help after migrant arrivals jumped 50 percent last year from the previous year. Here at home, a second fertility clinic in Alabama is putting a hold on in vitro fertilization. It comes after the state Supreme Court declared that frozen embryos are legally considered to be children. President Biden today called that decision outrageous and unacceptable. A federal judge in California has blocked a state law that targets guns designated as abnormally dangerous. The 2022 statute allows private citizens and state and local governments to sue gunmakers. But the judge found it reaches beyond California's borders and directly regulates out-of-state commercial transactions and violates the U.S. Constitution's Commerce Clause. A Texas judge ruled today that a high school acted legally when it suspended a black student over his hairstyle. Daryl George's lawyer argued his months-long punishment violated a state ban on race-based hair discrimination. The judge sided with the district, which cited its policy limiting hair length for boys. On Wall Street, stocks rallied as shares of chipmaker Nvidia jumped 16 percent. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained nearly 457 points to close above 39,000 for the first time. The tech-heavy Nasdaq rose 460 points, or 3%. The S&P 500 added 105 points and also reached a record high. And Hydea Broadbent, a leading voice in AIDS awareness, has died at her home in Las Vegas. She was born with HIV and had full-blown AIDS by age five. But as a young girl, she gained national attention, appealing for support of those with the virus. In 1996, she addressed the Republican National Convention and later starred in a TV special with Magic Johnson. Hydea Broadbent was 39 years old. Still to come on the NewsHour, the search for answers after a non-binary student dies after a fight at an Oklahoma high school. A respected geneticist and world-famous opera singer partner on research on music's potential to improve health. And a private spacecraft attempts the first U.S. lunar landing since the Apollo missions.
10: This is the PBS NewsHour. From WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University.
1: Some news from Capitol Hill, even as Congress is out of town. NewsHour has learned that bipartisan negotiators may reach a spending deal in the next few days, but that may not be soon enough to avert a partial government shutdown just a few days after that. This has been a familiar plot line in recent years, but Capitol Hill correspondent Lisa Desjardins joins us now to explain that this spending showdown has some unique features to it. So, Lisa, let's start with the timeline. And forgive me, I feel like I have asked you this before, but when would a government shutdown begin? And what, if anything, makes this showdown unique?
8: This has been as kind of repetitive as sort of the sunset and sunrise in American politics, but this time is a little bit different. And I'm going to show you why, looking at the timeline. It is shorter than even uh, you might imagine. So let's look at the calendar. When you talk about today, here we are, February 22nd. Congress is out of town. Now, the first deadline comes next Friday, and that's the first different feature. Uh, These spending deadlines are split in two. Four different kinds of appropriation bills have their deadlines end next Friday. Must be passed by that, or those kinds of agencies will shut down. Then there's a second deadline on March 8th after that. Now here's what makes it really very difficult to imagine them reaching that first deadline without some short-term deal, because Congress doesn't return, as I said, until next week, the Senate on Monday, but the House omNA does not return to Washington until next Wednesday afternoon. That will give them a day and a half two days to come up with some kind of solution uh, to meet that first March deadline.
1: So Lisa, walk us through what agencies and programs would be impacted who would be affected and when according to those deadlines
8: right we wanted to start talking about this now because we think next week is going to be busy it's going to feel more like a crisis and we wanted to just calmly explain what could happen here that march 1st deadline these are the kinds of agencies we're talking about agriculture energy transportation housing and veterans the va now that includes in those agencies WIC, the Program for Food for Mothers and Infants, as well as the FDA itself. Now, the March 8th deadline, that is all of the remaining agencies. Where is the bigger portion of government at risk? It's March 8th. That's about 80% of what government does, or about the what ag- federal agencies do. So that's the biggest, bigger chunk, the bigger concern. But that in a way, AMNA, makes that March 1st deadline more precarious. Some in the house will say, well, listen, it's not all of government it's not even most of government so perhaps we can afford to have a short shutdown after march 1st now let's also talk about some bigger picture issues here to help people understand there is a possible spending deal this weekend i have that reporting from multiple sources involved in the house and senate but Even if they have the outlines of a deal from appropriators, it is hard to see how that full deal for all of the spending that they need to pass can actually get through the House and Senate by March 1st. Now, if there is no long-term deal at all passed by April 30th, there will be a 1% cut for federal agencies. That is part of the Fiscal Responsibility Act, that debt deal, remember, led by Kevin McCarthy and with Chuck Schumer last year and President Biden? That was trying to motivate members of the House and Senate to get all of these spending bills passed on time. They said, if you don't pass these spending bills, there will be a cut. It's having a bit of the opposite effect. Some conservatives say, great, let's not spend them, and let's, in fact, do have a 1 percent cut.
1: So, Lisa, take us behind the scenes to some of the politics unfolding here. As you talk to lawmakers, what's your sense of what the chances are of a shutdown happening next week?
8: We're watching the House Freedom Caucus, and I spoke to several members of that group today. They sent out a letter yesterday, really a warning shot to Speaker Johnson, saying they wanted an update on this whole thing. But when you dig beneath the surface, what's really happening here, while it was a politely worded letter, is there are conservatives, and they're connected to Donald Trump, in fact, including from his son, who sent out this email today, saying what he got from that letter was that Republicans in the Freedom Caucus were ready to trigger a shutdown. And indeed, Omna, I did talk to uh, at least one member of the Freedom Caucus who said, Yes, I think it's worth a shutdown, and we should try and head that direction if we can't get spending cuts, which no one thinks is possible in the next week.
1: Meanwhile, Lisa, Speaker Johnson is overseeing one of the narrowest House majorities in history. What does all this mean for him?
8: This is his biggest test. He's been able to put off these huge decisions where his own conference is split, he will have to decide in the next few days if he wants to put forth a short term resolution or not. And of course, after that, he's got a major, very difficult decision on Ukraine funding as well. All right,
1: that is Lisa Desjardins with the latest twists and turns from Congress. Lisa, thank you.
0: This Saturday marks two years since Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine, in a war that started nearly 10 years ago. With the conflict at a frozen and brutal stalemate, Nick Schifrin now takes stock of what's been gained and all that's
11: been lost. In two years, countless wives, now widows, sons, now orphans the dead, stolen of their dignity, and 10 million forced to flee their homes, the largest refugee crisis since World War II. Everyone, everywhere, carries the war's scars. And so Ukraine fights. 300,000 soldiers are determined, but exhausted, outmanned, and increasingly outgunned. In some areas, for every artillery shell they fire, Russian soldiers fire 10. Two years ago today, before the full-scale invasion, Russia occupied 7 percent of Ukraine. On March 22, 2022, Moscow expanded control to 27 percent. Ukraine has won back about half that newly captured territory, but Russia still occupies 18 percent. Recently Ukraine pushed the Russian Navy further back into the Black Sea, increased exports, and now increasingly threatens occupied Crimea, but it recently lost the eastern city of Avdivka. The Russian military has momentum, as Ukraine waits for U.S. aid, without which senior U.S. officials fear Ukraine will lose. We now take a look at where the war is, where it could go, and U.S. policy toward Ukraine with three views. Michael Kaufman is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. John Mearsheimer is a political science professor at the University of Chicago. And Rebecca Heinrichs is senior fellow and director of the Keystone Defense Initiative at the Hudson Institute, a Washington think tank. Thanks so much, uh, all of you. Welcome back to the NewsHour. Michael Kaufman, let me start with you. Uh, As we just said, Ukraine has lost Avdivka. They're increasingly outgunned, uh,
2: outmanned. And how bad is it? LOOK, UKRAINE STARTS 2024 IN A VERY DIFFICULT POSITION. THAT IS VERY CLEAR. UKRAINE HAS A DEFICIT IN TERMS OF ARTILLERY AND MUNITION. PART OF THAT IS BECAUSE IT DEPENDS ON WESTERN SUPPORT FOR MUNITIONS, AND IT HAS A DEFICIT OF MANPOWER. IT NEEDS TO REPLENISH THE FORCE, PARTICULARLY THE infantry COMPONENT OF THE FORCE. NOW, WHILE IT'S TRUE THAT RUSSIA IS MATERIALLY ADVANTAGED IN THIS WAR, THAT MUCH IS CLEAR, IF WE LOOK AT MANPOWER, PARTICULARLY IF WE LOOK AT ARTILLERY, TO A LESSER EXTENT, EQUIPMENT That advantage at this stage is not decisive either. The battle for Avdivka, which was a five-month grinding fight, tells us about the challenges both militaries face. Ukraine was forced to retreat after fighting a defensive battle, but it inflicted very high costs on the Russian military. It cost the Russian military almost an entire army's worth of equipment, and equipment remains a limiting factor for them. So that being said, this year is clearly looking like a year during which Ukraine is going to focus most likely much more on holding defending. Trying to rebuild and reconstitute the force, and maybe creating challenges for the Russian armed forces with expanded strike campaigns.
11: Rebecca Heinrichs, do you agree with that assessment? Uh, And do you think the U.S. needs to go further than it has so far in its support?
9: I do agree with Mike's assessment. Um, You can look at all of the things that have not been going well for Ukraine. Ukraine has clearly demonstrated um, an amazing ability to make gains and retake territory, strong will to fight stronger and greater sense of national identity. And so what Ukraine needs now into the next year, agree with Michael, it needs to um, uh, be resupplied, but also longer-range strike systems, um, drones, bigger drones that can carry longer-range strike systems, in order to reach uh, Russian targets, not just in Ukraine, but outside Ukraine in a Russian territory.
11: So, John Mearsheimer, what do you think about that? That uh, all that uh, Ukraine needs to do is hold the line and that the U.S. should increase its support for Ukraine uh, over the coming years uh, in order for Ukraine to be able to achieve what it needs to?
10: Well, I disagree. Uh, I think that Ukraine has already lost the war. Uh, It's lost 20% of its territory, according to my calculations, and it's not going to conquer that territory and get it back as was demonstrated in the failed counteroffensive of of last year. The key to understanding where this war is headed is to know that it is a war of attrition. This is two armies that are standing toe-to-toe and beating the living daylights out of each other. And the question is, which army bleeds which army first? And it's quite clear that the Russians are bleeding the Ukrainians white. As the setup piece made clear, the Russians have an about a 10-to-1 advantage in artillery, and there's nothing we can do to fix that in the foreseeable future, because we don't have artillery on the shelf that we can give them. Furthermore, in terms of manpower, they are in absolutely terrible shape. They say they need a mobilization and will bring into the force 500,000 troops. They are not going to be able to mobilize 500,000 troops. In my opinion, they'll be lucky if they can mobilize 150,000 troops. And they're already greatly outnumbered by the Russians, because the Russian population is five times bigger than the Ukrainian population. So, when you look at the metrics that really matter in a war of attrition, the Ukrainians are in a terrible situation, and this situation only gets worse with time.
11: MICHAEL KAUFMAN, take on those points, that there's not enough artillery to send them, that they will not have enough manpower, and, quote, Ukraine has already lost.
2: Okay, first of all, I just have to disagree on the facts. The United States has plenty of artillery. just doesn't have the money. And artillery production, both in the United States and European Union, is increasing significantly. We will be in a much better position by 2025 than we are now. Second, Russia's fires advantage right now is about 5 to 1. It's not a decisive fires advantage, given the main constraints the force has. Third, When it comes to manpower, there's a lot more to military analysis than basic algebra. It's much more about how you use the forces you have and your ability to convert your resources into combat capable and effective formations. Russia has a lot more people on paper. That is true. But the Russian forces in Ukraine don't actually outnumber the Ukrainian troops on the front line by that much at all. Russia is feeding off of a Soviet legacy, pulling equipment from its warehouses. It lost a ton of it over the battle of Avdeevka. It can't keep doing that too many times. All right. And if Russia is not on track and doesn't look like they're actually really winning this war, by the time we get into twenty twenty five, their negotiating position becomes actually very uncertain.
11: Rebecca Heinrichs, is Ukraine already losing and is it a rump state, as John Mersheimer said?
9: No, of course not. The United States currently has ready to send Ukraine as soon as Congress gives a go-ahead and passes this national security supplemental. We've also seen the United States and other Western companies be able to adapt actually very quickly, increase the production of key munitions, and kick them over to the battlefield very, very quickly. Um, So for the medium and long term, it does have the ability to produce these weapons to get them to Ukraine if there is uh, the will to do so. And so this isn't uh, just all uh, good and positive things going for, for Russia. It does have to look elsewhere also. And so the same situation is for Ukraine. It's going to look to the West.
11: John Mirshav, I Amir to take on those points? One, that the U.S. and Europe are increasing their production to be able to send to Ukraine, uh, and two, that in general Russia does not have the decisive advantage that you think it does.
10: Clear from almost all the accounts in the media that the Russians have roughly a ten-to-one advantage in artillery. If uh, Michael's correct that the artillery is on the shelf, uh, why don't we give it, or why haven't we given it to the Ukrainians? And the fact is, it's not on the shelf. We don't have the artillery tubes or shells to give to them. And he says that we will make a substantial improvement in that regard by 2025. Uh, I would remind him that this is February 2024, and we have a lot of months to go before we get to 2025. Uh, And if you look at the Russians, they have a significant industrial base that can pump out lots of weapons, and they're doing exactly that, which is why they have a 10-to-1 advantage. Furthermore, if you look at manpower. Uh, There are some reports that the average age of Ukrainian forces is 43 years old. They're having a significant problem with draft dodgers back in Kyiv and other places in Ukraine. Uh, This mobilization is not going to be able to produce 500,000 troops. And Zeluzhny and other generals have said they need 500,000 troops, because the Russians have much larger numbers of troops. So, in a war of attrition, if you're outnumbered in terms of artillery and you're outnumbered in terms of manpower, you're really in big trouble. And you saw this in Avdivka, where the Ukrainians just suffered a humiliating defeat. Michael Kaufman, what
11: is
2: victory for Ukraine, and can it achieve it? Now, what does victory look like? Ukraine is able to achieve an end to the war on terms favorable to itself that does not involve sacrificing any significant amount of sovereignty. Or compromising its economic viability as a state. And ideally and most importantly, Ukraine avoids having to negotiate from a position of weakness where Russia achieves a victor's peace. And I think that's possible and it's still feasible at this point, but I won't argue that Ukraine does not have a difficult path ahead of it.
11: Rebecca Heinrichs, you talk about attacking inside Russia. Some U.S. officials, as you know, are worried about escalation. Do you think they should be?
9: To end this war on terms that favor Ukraine, to give Ukraine the strongest hand to play to end this conflict that leaves itself with a strong hand and to protect itself from, from further incursions is to make sure that Ukraine can inflict pain on Russia, so that Russia decides that it's no longer worth the risk and the cost to continue moving forward. To do that, you have to inflict pain. And Russia can no longer be a sanctuary for where it is launching its attacks and where its, it's logistics are. So, Ukraine has already been hitting some of those targets. It's just not been permitted to do so with with Western weapons. And that needs to change if we're going to actually change the tide of the war and enable Ukraine, as Michael said, to, to have a strong hand to play to end this war.
10: John Nersheimer, final word. And I just want to point out that you want to understand that we armed up and we trained the Ukrainians for a major counteroffensive last summer. And that counteroffensive was a colossal failure. And given what's happened since then, there is no reason to think that the Ukrainians can go on the offensive and win a war against the Russians. And, if anything, it's quite clear that the balance of power over time has shifted in the Russians' favor, and it's likely to continue to shift further in the Russians' favor moving forward. So we are in deep trouble in Ukraine.
11: John Mearsheimer, Rebecca Heinrichs, Michael Kaufman, thank you very much to all of
4: you. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What is it about Dana-Farber that makes it such an adversary against cancer? It's hundreds of Dana-Farber researchers and clinicians making new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber discoverers. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Go to DanaFarber.org everywhere and see how what we do here changes changes. changes lives everywhere.
1: There are new details today about the death of an Oklahoma teenager the day after a physical altercation in a school restroom. Nex Benedict, who was non-binary, attended high school in Owasso, a suburb of Tulsa. Police say that an investigation is ongoing. But Nex's death is raising concerns in LGBTQ communities and igniting fear in some families and among students who identify as queer. For a closer look, I'm joined now by our community's correspondent, Adam Kemp, who's been reporting on this story from Oklahoma. So, Adam, let's begin, please, if you can just tell us a little bit more about Nex, about who this teenager was, and also what we know about the events that unfolded the day before Nex's death.
12: Yeah, it's important to start the story that we don't know how Nex identified. Uh, what we do know is the teen was gender expansive. Uh, NEX was a 16-year-old sophomore student at Owasso High School. Uh, on February 7th, they were involved in an altercation with three other students in, in a school bathroom. Uh, early indications or early reports actually indicate that uh, NEX had their head uh, hit against the bathroom ground several times uh, during that altercation, uh, which lasted ar- around two minutes before it was broken up by s- other students. Uh, All the students involved were then checked out by a school nurse. Uh, Nex was then taken by a family member to the hospital. Um, Nex went home that evening, and the next day, medics uh, responded to a medical emergency involving Nex, uh, who was then later uh, declared dead at a local hospital. Family and friends have uh, described Nex as a a gamer who loved to play Minecraft, a straight-A student. And uh, a, a lover of animals, including a, a pet cat named Zeus.
1: So Adam, what about from authorities and from the school district? What are we hearing from them about Nexus death?
12: Right, police did say that Nexus death, uh, preliminary reports indicate that it was not the result of trauma. Um, it's, it, school officials have been tight-lipped so far on this, uh, mostly because this case does involve juveniles. But the Waso police uh, did say that an investigation is ongoing. Uh, It is important context to note for this story that, in 2022, Oklahoma did pass a transgender and non-binary bathroom ban, uh, so that students are not allowed to use the bathroom that their gender identity aligns with. Uh, State Superintendent Ryan Walters, it should be noted, uh, is is a very big critic of LGBTQ issues in this state. But he has offered Owasso Public Schools uh, his support and uh, the support of the state for uh, counseling services. Uh, Governor Kevin Stitt actually released a statement saying, uh, quote, the death of any child in an Oklahoma school is a tragedy, and bullies must be held accountable. Again, there's just still a lot of questions at this time without a lot of answers.
1: Adam, I know you've been speaking with families in the area with LGBTQ plus advocates. What are you hearing from them?
12: Yeah, right now it's it's a lot of fear from families that I'm hearing. Uh, uh, Right now in the Oklahoma State Legislature, more than 50 plus anti LGBTQ plus bills have been introduced uh, so far this session. That's the most of any state, uh, according to the ACLU. Uh, I spoke with uh, Freedom Oklahoma, which is a, a LGBTQ plus advocacy group who has been doing their own investigation into this case and has found that Nex had been bullied for more than a year. Um, uh, Speaking with Nicole McAfee, their executive director, um, she had this to say about kind of the mood of their community right now.
9: It feels incredibly overwhelming to not know how we can keep kids in our community alive as they are being bullied and targeted not only by fellow students, but by the state. We have a lot of teachers in that space who they themselves are queer or trans and non-binary and
12: are grappling with whether they can keep doing this work or if they feel like their only option is to leave. I've also spoken to many non-binary and trans parents here in the state who just say the atmosphere is that of despair right now. Um, as one mother in particular talked about uh, just the hateful rhetoric directed at her son uh, that she's seen ramped up in the past couple of years alone. Uh, right now, she's grappling with the idea of moving out of state and whether that's the best option to keep her son safe.
1: So, Adam, given all the questions, what can we expect to happen next?
12: Yeah, Owasso police say an autopsy and toxicology report are forthcoming. We know that uh, we don't know yet what the consequences could be for the the students that were involved in the fight. We do know that Nexus Family has hired an attorney and that vigils are being planned uh, around the state uh, for later this month.
1: Of course, our thoughts are with Nex Benedict's family tonight. Adam Kemp, our communities reporter, joining us from Oklahoma. Adam, thank you.
0: We have long known about racial and ethnic bias in healthcare, care, but now we're getting some firsthand knowledge of how pervasive it is from people within that system through the largest study of its kind. The report was based on interviews with doctors, nurses, dentists and mental health workers. William Brangham breaks down the study's findings,
5: part of our ongoing coverage of race matters. In this study from the Commonwealth Fund, nearly half of healthcare workers in the U.S. say racism against patients is a major problem, and equal numbers report that they have personally witnessed discrimination against patients in their workplace. Employees at facilities that mostly serve Black or Latino patients reported higher instances of discrimination. To expand on the study's findings and why it matters, I'm joined by one of its co-authors, Dr. Lori Zephrin is Senior Vice President for Advancing Health Equity at the Commonwealth Fund. Dr. Zephrin, so good to have you on the news hour. So, half of healthcare workers say racism is a major problem. They've seen it in their own workplaces. I'm curious why you chose to look at this issue from this perspective.
13: Yeah, thank you, and thanks
5: for having me.
13: You know, previous research really tells us that. Racism and discrimination impact healthcare outcomes, especially for people of color. This study goes a step further, really spotlighting the voice of healthcare workers who witness racism and discrimination and also experience it themselves in terms of why health workers, healthcare workers. Understanding what healthcare workers are experiencing um, and what they need from their employers and colleagues to address discrimination is really critical to successful and sustainable change. Healthcare workers are a key part of the healthcare system and they can be a part of the solution. You know, we do know that the perspective of patients and providers are incredibly important, but for this study, we decided to focus on healthcare workers because they're on the ground. You know, they impact the day to day care of people, and healthcare workers are living and breathing in the healthcare system every day. They really experience the realities of what it is to provide healthcare firsthand
5: one of the more striking disparities in this was the perspective of black healthcare workers and i'm going to put this graphic up while half of all healthcare workers said doctors are more accepting of white patients advocating for themselves compared to black patients it was 70% of black workers who said this i mean that kind of perspective just has to really leap out at you yeah it does it does
13: leap le- leap out um, leap out at you you know where you come from is important Diverse experiences are incredibly important. You know, the data are clear just in general on the importance of a culturally diverse workforce. Uh, It has a really profound impact on the healthcare system, on the patients served. I'm sure you have seen the data about diverse workforce. It can address cultural needs, language needs, improve communication, improve patient satisfaction. And there also may be more awareness of the impacts of discrimination and bias because of lived experience.
5: There was also similar disparities when it came to language differences, with over 70% of Latino workers saying that non English speaking patients just don't get the same kind of care as English speaking patients. Do these disparities, do you believe, actually impact patient outcomes?
13: There are data that support the linkage between discrimination and impact on quality of care. So we do know that uh, there are significant disparities and inequities and outcomes, whether we're talking about maternal mortality and the crisis we're experiencing in this country, or we're talking about inequities in life expectancy. We do know that where you live, work, play um, impacts your outcomes. Right? And there's impacts of discrimination and racism on the social determinants of health. So, we certainly have data that support this linkage. And, to your point earlier, for, for people that have lived experience whether it's race, ethnicity, language, um, other aspects of culture, there just may be more of an understanding, more of a recognition, more of a sensitivity to witnessing and discrimination within the healthcare system.
5: There was also an interesting generational divide with older healthcare workers not seeing quite as striking a-, a level of crisis as younger workers did. What do you attribute that to?
13: Yeah, you know, um, we didn't ask why in the study, and so you don't know what you don't know. But a few things come come to mind um, in terms of why younger people, younger healthcare workers, are seeing more. This could reflect a generational shift in healthcare workers being more equity oriented, in younger workers who recognize equity as a key component of healthcare outcomes. So we need more research to clarify these generational differences, and more research could be Potentially important to inform efforts to really prevent younger healthcare workers from leaving the profession.
5: On that issue, you talked with workers about what they would like to see done to make things better. What were the sort of general principles they they articulated?
13: Uh, Creating a safe reporting environment was one that came up as crucial. Um, So the study found that uh, witnessing discrimination creates stress, and also that healthcare workers fear retaliation. So, having a safe reporting environment that not only supports reporting, but also helps with reconciliation is really important as well. I think education also remains crucial to engendering reform, and training is going to be very critical, not just anti bias training, but also training, recognizing um, that discrimination can be a game changer in healthcare, that it can impact quality of healthcare outcomes, and also be able to recognize the signs of, of discrimination.
5: All right, Dr. Lori Zephrin of the Commonwealth Fund, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks
13: so much for having me.
1: Two giants of music and science are merging their knowledge to propel advancements in body and mind. Researchers, therapists and artists from around the world gathered to explore what's known and what's yet to be discovered. Jeffrey Brown takes a look and a listen for our ongoing arts and health coverage on Canvas.
6: I to fly. She is a singer, one of the world's most beloved sopranos. But at times in her remarkable career, Renee Fleming has experienced terrible bouts of somatic pain, the body's way of distracting her from the mental anxiety brought from performance.
3: I was never a natural performer. And so I just kept reading and reading about the mind-body connection, trying to understand more about what was causing this, et cetera. And I discovered that um, the medical profession and neuroscientists were studying music. And I asked him why one day.
6: He is the renowned physician geneticist best known for his landmark discoveries of disease genes and leadership of the Human Genome Project.
7: Today, we celebrate the revelation of the first draft of the Human Book of Life.
6: Francis Collins headed the National Institutes of Health, the world's largest supporter of biomedical research, for 12 years until 2021. I'm a doctor. I want to find every possible way to help people who are suffering from
7: illnesses or other kinds of life experiences that are limiting their ability to flourish. I wanna make
6: everybody flourish, and music is such a powerful source of that kind of influence. Together, they're leading proponents of a marriage of arts and health, advocates for research, understanding, and practice in the nexus of music and the brain. We talked recently on the NIH campus about their Music and Health Initiative, now in its seventh year.
3: I believe the arts should be embedded in healthcare across the boards.
6: Embedded meaning?
3: Meaning we already have it in many, many places. Many hospitals has, have discovered just how beneficial it is mm-hmm. to have creative arts therapists on staff. Children's hospitals should have a creative arts studio. I think, available to parents and their children and families. So I just think it should be everywhere in health care.
6: It's a growing movement, one we've been reporting on around the country, including neuroscientists at Johns Hopkins studying music's impact on dementia patients. a hospital at the University of Florida incorporating arts into its care. Individuals who suffered traumatic brain injuries, like former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, playing the French horn to help rewire her brain and rebuild her ability to speak. Our understanding of the brain's connections and responses is still in early stages, Francis Collins says, with projects like the NIH-funded Brain Initiative helping show how individual circuits connect and respond. We do know some basics, however. I think you can say the acoustic cortex, which is
7: where your brain processes incoming sound and particularly musical sound, does have some pretty interesting circuits. It's also plastic. It responds uh, to training. If, if you look at the brain of somebody who had intense musical training before age seven, you can actually see that part of the cortex is a little larger than in somebody who did not have that. So mm-hmm. our, our brains are responding to the environment very clearly in that way. And then you can say, okay, if you have a musical experience that affects you, you can see how that signal that starts out in the acoustic cortex spreads to many
6: other parts of the brain. Maybe you've had an MRI. Renee Fleming got in and sang for two hours.
3: When I show this video to people, I always say, well, no Grammys for this performance. (laughs) (laughs)
6: One interesting finding, that for an experienced singer like Fleming, her brain circuits were more active while she thought about or
3: imagined singing than when she actually sang.
6: Did that surprise you?
3: It it surprised me a great deal. It's also, I think, what's even more surprising to me is that music actually is in every known mapped part of the brain. So it's extraordinarily um, diverse and throughout the entire brain, as we know, as we currently understand it. The research so far
6: has a wide range of implications for child development, Alzheimer's, and other forms of dementia, Parkinson's, and other conditions and interventions. Some research goes on in labs, some in the world, as in a study in which individuals were offered singing lessons. One group was given individual training, the other as part of a chorus.
7: For 12 weeks, and to just see what happens as far as their health. Uh, The people at individual singing, they did okay. The people in the choir by all kinds of measures were actually affected in a very positive way. Many of them had chronic pain. Their chronic pain was noticeably reduced. Uh, They had various measures of personal attitudes. Their attitude toward generosity went straight up. And their oxytocin levels went up, too, (laughs) as another sort of hormonal measure of good will, good sense of health. My
3: favorite is postpartum depression is tremendously benefited by singing in a choir. I would never have, I, I wouldn't have guessed that. Having
6: even one risk factor like fact, you know those advertisements for drugs we're all bombarded with?
10: Ask your doctor or
6: pharmacist if Paxlovid is right for you. Renee Fleming has one she'd like to see.
3: And ask your doctor if music therapy is right for you.
6: As,
8: oh, yeah. Yes. As a
6: kind of prescription.
8: Exactly, right. prescription. exactly. Yeah. 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 Why not? Yeah, Everybody
6: but you have to, you're saying it still has to be shown exactly in a scientific method yes. for, for a doctor to willing to prescribe it sure that's our system and I'm totally
7: behind that you need evidence uh, that this actually isn't just a nice thing it actually improves outcomes I'm pretty convinced from the data we have that's the case for various places but let's tighten that up let's make it absolutely incontrovertible and then you'll have a better chance uh, with the insurance company saying okay because that may save the money in the long
6: run let's listen to this melody line as it floats all the way up this recent gathering and others fleming and collins are advancing new findings through a variety of collaborations including nih music and health with 20 nih institutes the kennedy center sound health partnership and the renée fleming foundation everything you're talking about requires kind of buy-in from your communities, the arts world and the science world, but is there still pushback? There's a bit, but I think we're getting some real momentum
7: going. Uh, It doesn't hurt that scientists are also musicians, at least many of them are. This workshop, we invited multiple leadership at NIH to come and take part, and they all said pretty much yes, and they went away saying that was even more interesting than I thought.
6: A young person now goes to the music conservatory, you want them to study therapy, science, health?
3: Well, these would be divisions within a conservatory or university, but uh, there's definite buy-in now. But when I started, um, people were saying exactly what you're saying as well, we have too much to do already with what we're doing um, in terms of presenting and is, we're strapped and the funding is difficult, et cetera, et cetera. But I think pretty much everyone's on board now because we're community service providers. So I think People who run performing arts organizations and conservatories are starting to see the benefit of it. No storm can shake my And
6: these two don't just talk about bringing their disciplines together, they've been known to give it literal form. As amateur musician Francis Collins accompanies science fascinated Renee Fleming. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jeffrey Brown at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland.
1: And Fleming has edited a collection of essays from scientists, artists, and therapists called Music and Mind Harnessing the Arts for Health and Wellness. That's due out this spring.
0: It's the first U.S.-built spacecraft to land on the moon in more than 50 years, and the first ever by a private company. The lander, known as Odysseus, was cause for celebration a short time
10: ago. We are on the the surface, and we are transmitting, and uh, welcome to the moon. Houston,
3: Odysseus has found his new home.
0: The mission is now expected to last about seven days until the sun sets on the landing site and a frigid lunar night begins. Odysseus took off from Cape Canaveral last week. While the Houston-based company Intuitive Machines created the spacecraft, this trip is key to NASA's goal of returning to the moon with a manned mission. Miles O'Brien joins us now. So, Miles, I got to tell you, the suspense in the studio here has been palpable hmm. over this last hour. Help us understand why this successful landing is so significant. What all went
14: into this? Well, no matter what the condition of the craft, Jeff, the fact that they've gotten this far with uh, the relatively small budget and tiny team that they have operating on this different structure where NASA is more of a customer, a client than it is uh, in charge, all of that uh, speaks well to the direction they're headed. How successful was this landing? Well, I-, I think we can say it's a success by virtue of the fact that it's on the surface and may be transmitting faint signals. Is it toppled over? Is there damage to it? We don't know yet. Uh, but I think in the grand scheme here, proving that this can be done and done for, you know, essentially pennies on the dollar is very important when you look at the larger uh, ambition that NASA has with the Artemis program.
0: In preparing to speak with you, I learned that all, or rather over half of all lunar landing attempts have ended in failure. Why is this so challenging, especially when we did this more than 50 years ago?
14: Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that, Jeff. You know, of course, you know, half, 50 uh, percent of the time will get you into the Major League Hall of Fame, but that's not very good for space travel. You know, what happened, you know, 55 years ago or so, Neil Armstrong, Apollo 11 lunar module, the guidance system was headed straight for a big boulder. And if he'd not intervened, that would not have been a success. So, um trying to replicate the neural network that is the human brain with 80 billion neurons and, and human eyes uh, with computers that are going to a place we don't know much about is a real challenge. And, and of course, uh, the moon is tough anyway because there's no atmosphere. You can't use parachutes. You have to have a powered descent all the way down. And they're going to the South Pole, which is much more rugged than any, any of the Apollo destinations. So uh, a lot of people say, well, if we did that, so easily back then. Why can't we do it now? Uh, There's all that and the fact that it cost us, inflation adjusted, about a trillion dollars to do it.
0: Wow. Well, this lander, as I understand it, has left behind six instruments on the moon's surface. What exactly do they do?
14: Well, they're going to be trying to characterize the surface of the moon. There was a lot of uh, technology involved in just the landing itself. There was a failure on the way way down of one of the laser guidance systems. Uh, The team was able to piggyback off of an experimental system that NASA was flying. Uh, And there actually are some space sculptures on board as well. The idea was to create this public-private partnership so that the company, Intuitive Machines, could sell payloads like a cross-country trucker, uh, NASA doing the most of it, uh, filling up most of the truck as it were. Uh, but other commercial players are there, including um, uh, Embry-Riddle um, University, which uh, had a tiny little CubeSat with cameras on it, designed to capture the landing itself. We'll see if we see those pictures. I, I, it would be great if we could.
0: Well, tell us more about this Houston-based company behind the spacecraft.
14: It's a a lot of former NASA people, a lot of steely-eyed rocket scientists. Steve Altimus is a legendary flight director from uh, NASA in the shuttle days and uh, senior manager at NASA. Uh, There's some experience here, but it's worth pointing out it's been two generations since uh, anybody actually lived through this in the United States and, and landed a craft on the moon. And so... The institutional memory is gone. We're in a way we're having to relearn all of this with new technology and without humans in the loop at the surface. So it's a different game right now, uh, with a different set of experience that's required.
0: And Miles, in the 30 seconds we have left, what is NASA hoping to glean with another manned mission to the Moon?
14: Well, I think they want to prove they can stay there. Building an outpost in space uh, as much as anything is to prove human beings can live in these environments because the long-range goal for NASA remains putting human beings on Mars. The idea is if you can do it at the moon, which is much closer, much faster radio signals, you got a better shot on Mars.
0: That is Miles O'Brien, our man on all things space and aviation. Always a pleasure, Miles. Thanks. Welcome, Jeff. And that is the News Hour for tonight. I'm Jeff Bennett.
1: And I'm Amna Navaz. On behalf of the entire NewsHour team, thank you for joining
4: us. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Wondery. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved, the Underground Railroad. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans. Our values, our struggles, and our dreams. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season, American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+. Plus.